Hello, and welcome to the DMV Business Show, a weekly show where we get to meet local business and community leaders in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area. They get to impact their story and how they got there. You can expect to hear advice and learn about their journey and how they went from point A to point B. My name is Odo Sevilla, and I'm a commercial real estate advisor in the local DC, Maryland, and Northern Virginia area. I have been very fortunate to have worked with many amazing entrepreneurs and executives, from startup founders to international Fortune 500 companies. And one of the things I love about what I do is I get to form these great relationships with some interesting people. I get to know them and I learn about how it all started. And I love hearing a good business story. When I'm not working in commercial real estate, I just also happen to be the host of this show. So please enjoy and welcome to the DMV Business Show. Hello everyone, welcome to the DMV Business Show. I'm your host, Odo Sevilla. And today my special guest is Tony Ma. Tony is the founder and president of Benton Technologies. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Odo. Thanks for having me. I'm glad I could be on, especially during this social distancing time. So thanks. For yes, having of course. My pleasure. We always try to find a way, even if it's uh, through tech. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. So as I mentioned before we hit record, Tony, I'd like the audience to first try to get to know you as a person and and how it all started. Are you from around the DMV area? No, I wasn't originally born. So actually, I have an, a very interesting origin story that kind of really, I've told this, and this is actually part of uh, why we do what we do. So I was actually born in a third world country. I, I look much younger than I actually am, but I actually do have quite a bit of gray hair. <clears throat> and I was born uh, during the Vietnam War. So basically, uh, I was in a third world country uh, uh, in a rural area outside of uh, Ho Chi Minh City, right? So this was during the Vietnam War, uh, mid seven, uh, early mid-70s. I won't kind of <laughs> reveal everything, but um, my mom actually uh, gave birth to me in a rural area. And so what ended up actually happening was she had what's known as undiagnosed hypertension. So uh, uh, when she went to deliver me at this uh, <clears throat> rural high, uh, clinic, uh, she went into what's called an eclamptic seizure. So her body just uh, shaking and stuff like that and purple, uh, her, all her hands at the extremities. That's what happens when you, uh, you have, uh, and then uh, the bottom half of her was just purple and blue. And basically she just went into <clears throat> a seizure. And so they had to carry her down I think it was three or four flights of stairs. I don't remember the exact story. And then they put her in the back of a vehicle, like a tuk-tuk and just like a flatbed. And they actually had to drive her like uh, uh, 20, 20 to 30 minutes away to a larger hospital. So you imagine two guys carrying a, uh, a woman that's kind of just had labor down flights of stairs. This is no elevators back then. So, uh, and then putting her and then drove her there. And then once they got <clears throat> there, what ended up happening was they, tried to stabilize her because back in that country, back in Vietnam during that day, it was, uh, they tried to save the life that was there versus the inside. After they stabilized her, then they put a pair of forceps and yanked me out, you know, head shaped a little bit weird. Uh, but that, and then the doctor basically said to my, uh, to my grandmother who was there, actually she left, uh, she left her, her son upstairs. She had to run back up to so all this thing. I mean, I'm, just kind of giving the abbreviated version, but 
the doctor basically said it's actually a miracle that uh, we both survived. In this situation, they try to save the life that is my mom, and they'll be lucky to save that life, but let alone uh, me being alive. So that was my intro, my origin, my true origin story, and how I I came into this world. So that's and it's part of the reason why I do the work that I do today. And so I was born uh, during the Vietnam War, and as you know. Uh, Ho Chi Minh City, um, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, uh, fell down, and actually we had to leave the the, the boat, uh, the country by boat. But before I actually get into that, so I actually had childhood trauma uh, because you know during the Vietnam War, you know you would actually hide in bunkers, you know, because there's raids and bombs and stuff like that. So later on, much later in my life, when I was nine or ten, I would remember I would wake up in cold sweats. And I, I remember being in bunkers, kids screaming. I think that's like three or four at the time. And, and basically uh, just being deathly afraid. My mom's going, and then uh, this is when I'm nine and 10 back in the U.S. already. Uh, and Tony, I'm, not, huh? I, I'm curious. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. So you're, this is going on with the, with the bunker. You're around three and four of age, right? Yeah. yeah. So and, I, I remember my whole childhood. Very few people know their childhood when they're young, but I have very vivid memories of my childhood. And, and this is when, when war is happening, bombs is going on. Are you leaving your home and you're going to a bunker or is it right there in your home elsewhere? Uh, in the home. Most of the homes okay. have like bunkers or like shelters underground and stuff okay. like that or, or basements with uh, fortified basements and different things of that nature. So. Uh, I just remember, you know, being um, definitely afraid. So she said, oh, those were, I thought those were just bad dreams. And so mm-hmm. uh, my mom basically said, no, those are just you reliving past memories. Wow. Uh, and so anyway, after the fall of Vietnam, we actually left the boat. So <clears throat> we left the country by boat. So if you've heard of the term boat refugee. Yes. Uh, my family was a boat. Uh, we were boat refugees, like similar to, that's why we can relate to like, Cuban refugees, Syrian refugees, people leaving war-torn countries uh, during that time. So my mom uh, carried me and uh, my brother and my sister. My father actually had left a little bit earlier. That's another story for another day because of uh, uh, the the family that he was associated with. So long story short, we left uh, by fishing boat. And so that was very treacherous. I think... uh, you know, this is uh, during right at uh, after the fall, a couple of years, I think 77, 78. Uh, long story short, we uh, uh, we had a friend of the family. Uh, he had a fishing boat, right? So or he actually had a fishing business with two fishing boats, a larger fishing boat and a smaller fishing boat. And so uh, this is the story told as my mom. And so we being um, a distant family, a family, actually, this was my my uh, aunt by marriage's brother. So he had the fishing boat. So we were gonna be fortunate because we didn't have to pay for passage. We paid very little for passage. So, but anyways, he put it on the bigger, safer boat, right? And then the, he had these two boats and they were gonna leave roughly around the same time. <clears throat> well, uh, my understanding is somebody found out, somebody that was paying this gentleman. Uh, uh, and so, and he was gonna be in the bigger, the captain of the, so, uh, they said, no, you know, we're paying for this. So we want to be in the, we want to be in the bigger, safer boat versus the small fishing boat. And these are like 40, but not very long, not very big. So long story short, we got bumped to the smaller boat. And so we all left at sea. I remember that day vividly waking up 
that morning, my mother, uh, my grandmother washing my face, crying, me crying and saying, I might never see you again, because it was a treacherous journey, right? So there was that possibility that we would never see each other again and then going. And, and in, the, in those days and age, you had to lie to let people, or use a cover, uh, different types of cover to kind of escape, right? So you go down to the river. Uh, and so for us, our, our story was we were going to a, a grave site. So we carried some fruits and vegetables, and that was really all that you could carry. And of course, lining with uh, uh, gold and silver for the new country that you were going to. That's what people did. So um, we left. And so we got to the boat. And then, of course, we had to get on the smaller boat. Long story short, both boats went out to sea. Uh, the big boat, which we were supposed to be on, with uh, my, uh, my, uh, my aunt's brother, lost at sea. Everybody died. Right? Wow. So, nobody knows. so we were in the small boat. I mean, <laughs> I'm talking to you. So yeah. uh, I was supposed to be in the bit. And so, on, um, so we uh, were at sea. First, we went to Thailand. This, again, too young. To my, my How mom's old were you, Tony? Uh, I was, I think, uh, four or five at the time, right? Okay. So, okay. Five, right? Okay. so uh, but at, at sea, so my mom's carrying three kids. We were out at sea and it was really trek, uh, pretty bad. I mean, water. I remember after two days being out at sea, being really thirsty because nobody was prepared, right, for any of this. And I remember like us, you, you and in, in the South Asian Sea, there's lots of pirates. You actually hear stories of people dying. So we, actually ran into a fishing boat, which is a Thai fishing boat. And, and luckily they didn't kill us and stuff like that. And, and they actually had fish. And so we actually uh, were so thirsty that they used ice to kind of pack these bloody fish that they captured. So the only, and everybody was so thirsty that nobody prepared for the water and stuff like that. And we would take these cubes of ice, bloody ice and we would suck on them spit out and then that was our water right so this yes. one day so i mean uh, i think you can go several days or so without um food but not so long without water so anyways long story short uh, again this is the recount from my uh my mom we went to first to thailand but i believe soldiers found out of, of the approaching boats and so in in most countries you know you don't want refugees going onto your shore so they shot at and basically turned us around, or something. That's my understanding, right? So whatever they did, forced us back out to to sea. And then my my mom, uh, they then went to Malaysia. So we went to, and I, and as we were going, I, my understanding is there's soldiers and others, you know, once they're signaling. So what they did was once we got to Malaysia, and this is six days later, they just rammed the boat into, uh, into the so that, and then jumped on and just ran into land, and that was really you know, the story. I mean, you see stories of, of that. I see on the news, so I can relate of how trying to cross. So, uh, so that's, that's our story. And then we went to this um, refugee island uh, there. And I, my mom says a lot of kids died, according to her estimates, right? This is not scientific. She said, sure. probably, you know, uh, maybe a fifth to a third of the kids died. And this is an island in Malaysia. Yeah, Malaysia. Okay. It's, uh, it's called Palau Basur, B-E-S-A-U-R. It's there. So it's, okay. now it's a, a resort, right? So, but it was actually, and that's where we, uh, you can look it up and there's some history around uh, that uh, on Google now. <laughs> and so we were there for about seven months before we were sponsored uh, by families and came to the U.S. So that's my 
origin story and how I came to uh, the U.S. Uh, definitely, you know, as immigrant family, lots of struggles, you know, working. I learned uh, my mom worked multiple jobs and then just knowing that she, uh, you know, carried us around. We had public transportation with, uh, imagine a, a mom carrying like three, four kids uh, uh, and basically just. Are you the oldest, them. Tony? Yeah, I'm the oldest. I'm the okay. oldest. So, so even, I'm curious, even after her first health scare giving birth to you, she continued to have more? Uh, she, she did, but she didn't, right? So there's, there's different things that happen in, in Asian cultures where the man has a little bit more say. And so okay. she did, after me, she didn't really want to have my brother or my sister, right? So, sure. so long story short, there's three of us, though. Okay. But you're the and, oldest. Okay. Yeah, I'm the oldest. And so we're over here, and now we're... You know, so she's trying to make a living. She worked her life basically as a uh, as a housekeeper, a blue collar worker and stuff like that, but worked her way up. Uh, um, just, you know, was able to do not only support her, but her, so uh, I, I really a hard worker, right? I mean, she really uh, uh, was very entrepreneurial per se. So, I mean, one of the things I think that I admired at her was she was, this is before the Mary Maids and all these other things. And I actually told her, much well this is right before i went to college and i'm much older than that. i said hey you should open up a business because you're doing something that's pretty but she was never into that but she was very entrepreneurial i mean she would get little placards and have people type up and advertise for her service and that's different good. things of that nature and uh, she was able to make a honest living and just you know uh, cleaning houses and sometimes airports cleaning different things apartments different and so um, that's really how she got me through there. And so I guess one of the things, of course, uh, she was so busy. I was a latchkey kid, I mean, you know, and stuff like that. And got in a lot of trouble and stuff like that. I mean, I think more things that I think there's stuff that she, that all the trouble that I, I, I got into. I mean, so, I mean, just an example of, of, of the craziness of the trouble. I, I, I remember, and this is her disappointment, as she never, as she, she was one of the types of moms that just showed disappointment. That was enough. Uh, but I remember, you know, as a, a first grader. So this is, you know, this is uh, uh, actually playing hooky. So in first, oh, the first grade, grade, in first grade, I knew of a sixth grader. So where, is, uh, by the way, where, where is this? When you come to America, where do you arrive? So, uh, I, okay. I, I, so I, always DC metro area. Uh, okay. Metro area, so. Okay. So I, I actually, on the way, in first grade, the teacher, uh, the cafeteria entrance was also the en way to the exit. And I had talked to other sixth grader, a friend that also came by a boat and stuff like that. And so, but he was a sixth grader and I was a first grader. And we said, hey, let's skip and stuff like that. So <laughs> this is how delinquency can occur. And I definitely... Uh, understand because you know parents are all working so I, I, I do see the side and that's why I so uh, relate to our mission of health disparities and underserved so I left I booked out of there when the teacher would put everybody in line and I was near the front of the line and the teacher would go inside and help organize and I left so basically I left and I went out and actually we went someplace uh, where we shouldn't have been. It was like, I forget what it was, like an arcade or something like that. Okay. And, uh, monies. And back then, we were juvenile delinquents at that yes. time of an age. And, and uh, basically, we were picked up by the cops. Uh, it's like, you should be in school. So I remember being 
and then they drove us. So that's a uh, long story short. That was uh, my entry into early you know, delinquency. But again, I think that was, uh, it was more of just something fun to do. Not sure. Something, you know, like the parents and just being a latchkey kid and mom just really doing what she could. You know, I understand the struggle of, of, of parents, of immigrant parents, and just trying to make a, a living. I mean, I can go on the stories and the things that, uh, you know, we did to, to make it and survive, but, uh, you know, and all the bad stuff that I did as a, as a child, but, you know, I, I mean, not, not, nothing like criminal, but bad stuff, you know, like uh, things like that, that you, you should be punished for and stuff like that. Uh, so long story short, you know, came to, uh, to also appreciate one of the things though as growing up is you know this love of education so I mean she did try to uh, push and, and I guess being the oldest uh, it was it came easy so as I grew up one of the big things was really education so just moving forward I, I, from the sake of time because I think it's my origin story is too long uh, I went uh, uh, I went to University of Virginia okay. uh, which was actually the only school I applied to stupid me uh, back then, uh, because I heard it was a great school. Number, I think it was like number one, number two public school, and I, uh, that's all I applied to. I mean, if I hadn't gotten in, I did get in early decision, long story short, and went to the University of Virginia. Before, Tony, before UVA, before you went to UVA, how, besides the early sort of uh, troubles you were causing there, how were you at school as far as grades? Were you into certain activities or interests that you can remember? Yeah, I mean, I, I did wrestling, so I was a roster. Okay. And then I was I also did gymnastics for a little bit, but uh, I definitely book. And then also uh, I tried the math team. There was a local thing called It's Academic back then, so I was on the It's Academic club, so a, a nerd. But then also trying to to hang out with the cool kids. Where yes, was, yes. Like, that was just uh, the, the situation, and so okay, uh, that's good. Yeah, sorry, sorry, my son Andrew needs to go. So and then. Um, so in college, uh, in high school, really, you know, I, you know, you tried to hang out with the cool kids and have fun. So I, I thought I did okay, right? So, but we did move. My parents did move. Uh, I, I, I thought she moved me from middle school to high school to a different school, so I wouldn't cause trouble because there was trouble a brewing. And so they, she switched me to a new high school, so I had to make new friends. Was it always in the Arlington, Virginia area? Or yeah, you... I was first in, I was in Arlington. I, I would have gone to Wakefield, which is a high school there, but I ended up going to Annandale, which is a different high school locally. So Better, better high school? I, I think at the time, yeah. I mean, okay. so it, you know, it got, you know, I was always smart. So I was always in the GT or gifted and talented and all these other things. So moving, I had to make new friends and focus on, on, on school versus focus on fun because yes. seventh and eighth grade was fun. <laughs> and so uh, ninth, 10th and 11th, 12th, but uh, really, again, had to reestablish myself. Uh, and and uh, from there, I guess, was in less trouble. Uh, just to say, I, I did stuff that parents don't know because they're working so hard. Sure. Right? But, you know, so, but again, I got in with some good friends. Uh, they were all applying to good schools. So I applied and, and I got in. So again, during that time, I, I did get involved in, in the gymnastics and, and, and wrestling and weightlifting, all this typical stuff, uh, sure. I guess. That's good. It, it reminds me a little bit of my story. I'm also an immigrant and I came here at a very young age. And 
I came to DC, so I grew up in Washington, DC, but I, I wasn't the best student uh, doing similar things to you. Um, and I, I really actually didn't even think about college because, you know, a lot of times growing up in the city, some people are involved in, in criminal activities. And a lot of my friends did, weren't going the right route. And, you know, as an immigrant parent, like you said, they're busy providing, trying to provide food on the table and shelter and everything fleeing where we just left. And, you know, they tell you go to school and education, but you know, as a kid, you, you do, you do certain things that you shouldn't be doing. Yeah. I remember like, you know, one of my friends, uh, again, I didn't do this. I, I can blame my brother, but we, back then, you know, rap music was very happening and people would wear like the, the Mercedes emblems and uh -huh. stuff like that. And, and the way kids would get it is they would rip them off of cars. Right. I mean, the emblem. So, I mean, I didn't do it. My brother and, and my friends did it. So that I mean, those were some of the stuff that I think, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's it's minor. But still, I mean, now if I had the car and the kid do that. I'd be pretty mad. Right. Sure. So, sure. Uh, but again, this is not knowing and parents just really working. And I, I think that was that's the level, I think, of, of, of our our delinquency. But again, definitely. Uh, after that, I think, you know, and we weren't successful, by the way, but so they tried to yank it. I think it was stuck in that hook thing and we didn't know how to end it. I just observed, but uh, again, so long story short, that, that's, the, that's the history of, of, of some of the things that we did. And then went to University of Virginia. And actually, my first summer was actually a very influential uh, point. So I went to sell books for a company called Southwestern, uh, being a bookman. So actually I've met multiple bookmen, some of them very successful. And, um, you sell books door to door. So they teach you a week and you go across the country and usually you sell in impoverished areas. And back then, uh, this is like the, the 80s and 90s and most families, successful middle income family had like the world book or the Encyclopedia Britannica, yeah. yes, thousands yes. of dollars. And that was a sign of success because you didn't, you didn't have to go to the library. I right? remember those days. Yeah, so, yes. uh, but there was a, a competing product from Southwestern. It was like a four volume book set or something like that with, with kids. And so I went to Van Nuys and basically, uh, which is like a, a area in LA, which is, you know, lower income. So I remember selling books door to door uh, and meeting some very interesting people. So again, this is, was something that forever impacted my life because these were people that, you know, also immigrant, a lot of them um, uh, Latin American and, uh, and some of the neighborhoods were pretty bad. I mean, I remember uh, going into one neighborhood uh, two weeks prior, there were, there were bullet holes on the, on, on the house and there was drive-by shooting. I remember, I was like, I, I didn't know what bullet holes could look like on a house, so I went there. You know, I, I met into a lot of immigrant families and they would invite me in. Of course, I knew not to throw signs because this is gang territory uh, and there, and actually uh, some of the things that impacted me the most is I actually met a, a gentleman and he had been released from prison two weeks prior and we sat down and we chatted and stuff like that. And of course he talked about the books and he's, Oh, I w wish I could have these books for my kid. And he was fairly young, I think 30 year old. And he would still, uh, what impacted me was the fact that he still wanted something better for his kid. Right. So what I met time and time again was that, you know, I met, uh, 
I met gentlemen that were kind of like also drunk and different things, but they always wanted something better for their kids. So education in this book and that forever stuck with me, right? So that desire to have a better education using these books and to, you know, even though whether they broke that cycle of poverty or not, but that desire to do it was, was forever impactful. And again, we're talking about neighborhoods. I remember from there and then also at the end of the year, going to Crenshaw and picking up a rental. So Crenshaw wasn't too far, but uh, you know, so, uh, so that's just some of the stories uh, that actually forever resonated into my, persona and then also the, I got a chance to sell so I, if you ever have a chance to sell books door to door or anything door to door do it because it it builds character it teaches you how to sell it teaches you you know so many techniques I look back I hated it when I did it because it was a seven to seven job but uh, I look back at it with fond memories after the fact you, you you did that for the whole summer or for yeah for the whole summer uh, people wanted to quit there's the and there's stories of people getting bit by dogs <laughs> i mean that's what you're doing but again if you were really good at it now i, I think they're selling digital cds and uh, they still sell it and I, I think recently you could back then uh, a good sales summer you could make like 20 30,000 a summer three wow. months right and now the record I heard, I just met another bookman a couple, um, like two weeks ago, or a week ago. And he says the new record for the summer, three months, I think it's like 110,000. Wow. Three months. Wow. So uh, that, that's what, and these are for college students and stuff like that. So I, I think it builds characters and it's, it's, it's a, a great thing. I think when I was there, I think the, 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 I think the record that summer was like 40,000. Okay. I mean, months of work. That's, that's awesome. Right. So it is. Would, would you recommend for other students to do something like that? Yeah. I, I've, I've met and I've, I look at it with, it builds character hard. Nothing beats hard work. Uh, it teaches you. I mean, we had to read like a, Napoleon Hill, I think is the name of the book, and you know, yeah. uh, other books, uh, sales books, st stuff, Dale Carnegie. I mean, there's a bunch of different things that I think if you ever want to get into the, the business of being an entrepreneur and stuff like that, nothing beats the sales route, right? I, I mean, I, I hated it. I'm not good at it, but I, I learned the, the, the necessary steps that I, I look fondly even now to this day about needing scripts and all these other things that are and processes and that's how you scale right yeah you definitely pick up things there that you can use later on in life yeah definitely so that was the first summer in college and did you do that the following summer or what, no. what happened after <laughs> i hated it <laughs> i hated it with a passion i looked at after actually by my my last year i wanted to do it again but i was just like it was just i mean you're waking up you're eating pb and j so it's uh, every day seven to seven you don't really stop and uh, the, the five to seven was what was called gravy time because that's when people were home and you could close the deal right? yeah so so that, that was, it was known as gravy time. I think it's still called that at this point. So uh, after that, of course, I did internships, got that and went down a path. I graduated uh, from University of Virginia, uh, 96. And then from there, uh, that was the dot-com era. And so actually during that point, I had a rocket ship of a career the first four what, years. What did you major in, Tony, at, at UVA? Systems engineering. Systems okay. Engineering. Okay. So I was an engineer. Uh, 
Did yeah. you know that? Did you know that right away your freshman year, or what made you decide on that major? Uh, I think uh, once I got in there and I saw, I I knew I wasn't good at double E and I wasn't good at mechanical engineering, so more dynamics needed to kick my rear. I think this is the PT. So I basically uh, went systems engineering because I can do computers, right? So and that was that, and it was not all computer because there was also a computer science degree, but this was uh, sounded very interesting. And I think it also had a competitive nature. So the way University of Virginia works is you have two years on a regular major, and then you have to get accepted into the system of engineering, which is like a double. So one of the things that I liked about the university, liked and didn't like about the it was so competitive. I mean, if I, I, there were times it graded on a bell curve, so you know only the top 10% would get an A. So it, it was done that way versus a straight curve. So some of the uh, you know, I think one of the things, uh, you know, University of Virginia, uh, some of the kids are known as snobs and other things, but I think they, they make it very competitive in some of these cases, uh, I think to your benefit. And so I, I think that actually did well to that competition. And I did love some level of the competition. So to get into the systems engineering, you had to have a certain GPA. And if you didn't, and I, we actually, I know one friend that initially didn't get in, but he stayed in to try to get in, then he ultimately got in. But if he didn't, then you, it, it was kind of like um, SOL, if I can use that term. So, yeah. Uh, and that, that was like that, and the comm school was that way. It was very cutthroat. So just because you got into UVA didn't mean you could get into some of these other programs because you had to get good grades the first two years and then get into this other piece to so that that was the way the university of virginia worked in some of the programs so yeah. you you, you received your bachelor theirs and then what happened yeah so then i went on a meteoric rise uh, uh, uh of a career uh so the first four years of my career i, I just uh not to brag but the first four year I, basically my salary doubled every year for the first four years and if you can use the term i'll just use a generic like 45,000, so you seeing that double every four years, I went through and uh, fairly quickly went to a startup called UNET and then salary doubled, then went to uh, actually doing consulting. So it was actually by my third third year, I actually got a, I, I still have it somewhere. I, I, it might've been tossed recently, but I, my, my first six figure salary uh, about, uh, I think it was like two and a half years out of school, right? Six figure salary with, I think, a twenty thirty thousand $30,000 signing bonus. This is right. Hot. So I was like, uh, the hot thing, of course, my salary doubled, uh, continued to double and stuff like that. And so I thought I was going to retire at 40. At this point, you know, you had the dot com, I had money in stocks, you know, portfolio, probably half a million dollars, uh, all these other things. So I was on this rise. And then I guess uh, everything fell apart because of 9-11. Uh, but again, I, at that point, I actually started uh, a prior company and uh, with two other people, but they left because of 9-11, uh, because of funding and other things. So, so long story short, I won't get into that detail. And so uh, two, uh, there was four original founders. So one person stuck with me and she's still with me to this day. So that other uh, co-founder and actually was, she was across from the Pentagon when the plane flew over her building and hit in so that was very traumatic and of course we uh, friends of uh, family people passed away World Trade Center stuff like that and so uh, that was uh, I guess 
that. And then I, I think during that time, I was also traveling internationally. So I was consulting, uh, management consulting, you know, I, I know we negotiated with like uh, the leader partner for um, what, what would be like Accenture in Southeast Asia. So kind of do that. Okay. But I think part of what, what I found out is when you have nothing to lose, you're very bold in your negotiation skills. This is why another reason why my salary kept doubling, right? So, yeah. Uh, so um, um, from that perspective, did a stint, and we came back right before 9-11 hit, and that 9-11 hit, and so uh, had a bunch of money in the bank, stocks tank, you know, lost the half billion, uh, million dollar portfolio, uh, had a bunch of money saved because of doing well, lost all that too, because trying to restart the business and stuff like that. So okay. uh, that was, I guess, you know, the first Hurdle and keeping to learn, right? Continuing to learn, uh, and then uh, I think you know, still ha having to rebuild. So there were some rebuilding years, and then we went and uh, uh, I think about 2007. Between there, there were rebuilding years, and we're starting to get good again. But then I think you know, just starting to feel a little bit burnt out. Uh, we were still doing a lot of management consulting. So again, the reason why getting paid too well is doing a lot of this management consulting during this time and i think you know we came to the realization that you know we we're you know we were consulting like the cios vps and like that companies like cricket and stuff like that and uh we, we came to the realization that hey you know we're making you know cios you know, rich and stuff like that but really what's our root why, why are we doing what we're doing and so at that point in time you know we we started to pivot 2007, 2008. And so we said, how can we, uh, we were still doing management consulting and stuff like that. So uh, we, we did go down uh, this path to say, okay, let's get into what we really want to do, our passion, which is really uh, helping people. And uh, during that time, we had had some other successes, including like some healthcare and others. So we said, uh, why not in the healthcare space? And that's where I think that, pivot came is where we said, hey, let's, let's focus on creating products to uh, improve uh, people's lives. And so that's where Benton is now this day is, you know, we're mostly a translational R&D company focused on, on improving people's lives. Our mission is uh, uh, our uh, big, hairy, audacious goal at BHAG is to uh, basically impact a billion lives if you realize the U.S. doesn't have a billion people, then you know that we're talking about global health. And so uh, I guess I'm trying to look at time and stuff like that. So from that perspective, that's why I guess we've repositioned ourselves and the people that we work with and, and defined our mission is really to impact people's lives. And it's centered around uh, three pillars, right? And the three pillars are if we can leverage time, technology and education and this is all everything that's built up uh, we can democratize healthcare and address health disparities so why time technology and education time because i saw what my parents had to go through as blue collars if you're a blue collar worker you don't have a car you don't have you're using public transportation you're working multiple jobs you don't have the luxury of time right so how can you maximize time uh, for those people that don't have that luxury, right? 
right? So that's, uh, and in third world countries, others, that's, that's the case, right? So that's one of the pillar. How can we maximize time? The second time, uh, second one is technology, right? So with now the, with artificial intelligence, with uh, robotics, with uh, machine, with so many automation and other tools and technology, uh, you can help. And then even with uh, things like um, chat, uh, telemedicine or tele, could be, you don't have to travel. There's ways to do things, sensor, there's other things that, that could be done to kind of really help that. And then the last piece is, is education, time, technology, and education. And the reason, of course, education got me where I am today, this, in spite of myself. Uh, but again, uh, I think, you know, my education at UVA, the, the experience I had selling book and the, the value of education and families and then that. And so that's, that's kind of part of what the three pillars. And so that's the three pillars of how we move forward with our mission of our organization. But we also have a, a tagline that kind of defines who we are and our core values, right? And our tagline is do better while, sorry, I'm bad with pointing, <laughs> do better while. It kind of, and we got that trademark, I think about three years ago. And so what does do better while uh, mean besides being something that uh, you know rolls off your tongue and sounds nice and is on the back of shirts and mugs, right? So, do better while kind of defines our core philosophy, what we hire and fire by. And so, what does that mean? So, the core value do the first two is do the right thing, not from your perspective, but from the people that you're serving. And again, this is all the context of healthcare, right? So whether you're a homeless person, whether you're addicted to opioid, whether you, you don't know the context or that person's backstory, right? Just like before this whole conversation, you didn't know where I was a boat refugee, this, that, and that's just half my story. You don't know where I came from, so do right by them. So you don't know where that homeless person's coming from. You don't know what that person is struggling from. And so you have to do right by the people that you're trying to serve. The second do is do Agile. So Agile has two connotations. Agile Big A, since I'm a geek and a nerd and in and, and software, Agile Big A is a development methodology, being iter iteration, right? You're always iterating through stuff and it's a development methodology. Uh, and then there's Agile, on the flip side of that coin we say is Agile Little A. Agile Little A just means being flexible, being Agile. And for us that means, you know, walking a mile in someone else's shoes. So it's kind of similar, but in this perspective, instead of you uh, under, you trying to put yourself in their shoes, so being agile, try to being flexible. And for us, that translates into really seeking to understand and working with the community. And, and so we use what's known as the community-based participatory research. We use co-creation. We work with people to really solve the problem you know it's kind of like teach the community to fish work with the community really do that and then the last two again three pillars type thing is uh the three the do is do r d so we do research development but we do very specific what's known as translational research in order to do the three betters uh, so we actually have three betters again three uh better innovation so it doesn't have to be the best innovation. Innovation is always incremental. Yes, we would like to have 
that new most innovative, but it's key to continually to innovate. So that continuous innovation that leads to better outcomes, right? For us, better outcomes means it's scientific, it's measurable. So if we talk about increasing breastfeeding rates or we, uh, reducing deaths to opioids and stuff like that, it has to be measurable. So we have to quantify that. And that's how we wanna really move forward. And then, um, so that's the second, uh, better is better outcomes and ultimately leading to quote unquote a better world, right? So, uh, you know, that we say, so those are the three better. And then um, there was a, uh, a famous uh, writer, um, I think he's passed away now, I haven't looked up, uh, Peter Drucker, he had a book called In Pursuit of Wow, right? Or even Simon Sinek's Your Why, so Why Wow. So we, we say at the end of the day, when we're pushing up daisies, this is the people that we, we looking for we say we want people to look back at our work and say wow they did work w that overcame o the world's w's problem so our we want people to reflect back on benton and say wow they did work that overcame the world's problems so that's really what drives us and so when we're trying to look for our tribe and people that we hire and are and stuff like that we always say, uh, you know, uh, there was a late 1990s Apple marketing campaign. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Apple had all these cool marketing campaign, which was called the Think Different campaign. It said you know, in there, it said, it's uh, the quote, paraphrasing, I'm not exact, you know, it said, it's the crazy people that believe that they can change the world are the ones that do. So call us crazy. So that's really kind of what drives us. And of course, you know, we've uh, had success both from the management side and uh, management consulting side, but now we're focusing more on the R&D. So we're doing some great work. Like we have projects now over in India where we're increasing like breastfeeding rates. We're looking at projects in, in Egypt, projects in and uh, hopefully in uh, Vietnam, again, going back there, and then also uh, in the U.S. too, like uh, we're hope, working with organizations to combat the opioid crisis, uh, building uh, technological components to solve those problems, um, breastfeeding, uh, underserved populations. So that's kind of where we are. Uh, and this is all in the healthcare space, right, Tony? All in the healthcare space. All in the healthcare space. Okay. Yeah. So with the healthcare, what are you doing exactly? You're doing, you said, research and development there in all these different countries internationally? Yeah, and building products. So the products all tie to, you know, some technological. A lot of them are known as mHealth, mobile health solutions. But then we throw in things like... Uh, computer vision, natural language processing, AI, artificial intelligence. So the great thing about all this is I get to work with some of the greatest minds in the country and in the world. So I, I get to work with great people, right, that are passionate about the same things that we're passionate about was really to, to democratize healthcare and address health disparities. And with all these projects, are you working mostly with private companies or is this with the private sector or is it more with the government agencies there and different so, jurisdictions? So a lot of these are through grants and contracts. Okay. And what ends up happening is you have our partners are academic institutes mm -hmm. as well as medical centers. Like for example, locally 
you know, we wrapped up a project with MedStar, we're working with uh, GW, but we also work with people at like MIT, UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago, uh, all across the country. You know, we have people uh, and, and uh, some of the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, I mean, these are different types of organizations that we work with, Thomas Jefferson University. So we work with some of the, the brightest minds in the uh, the country tackling tough problems. And I guess why I say, you know, I, we get to wake up and work and do great things. And the people that we get to work with are passionate about doing that. And we're, you know, I think we're starting to see some of the impacts to that and we will continue to, to do that, right? So I'm on my second act. And so that's really uh, my big driver is really, can we create these products and have an impact? Uh, one example, right? So hopefully we'll get additional funding is like, over in rural India, we worked with some great team members to build a mobile app to help uh, case managers, uh, not case managers, uh, peer counselors to basically increase exclusive breastfeeding rates. That's been a, national, a global problem to kind of increase the rates to higher levels because in third world countries, uh, breastfeeding will actually, if, if, if you do it exclusively, it, it actually will prevent a bunch of problems for the child right versus feeding them water or formula that's kind of mixed with wa local waters and other types of issues right so uh, we were able to uh, in what uh, uh, underpowered type study uh, pseudo mixed study we were able to increase the breastfeeding rates in the our, what's called our intervention group to 63 percent versus the control group or the comparison group that we were looking at it was only 36 percent so we almost doubled wow. the, uh, the rates. And, and this is following moms for uh, six months, uh, two months before, and to, so educating, so uh, if that works. And I, uh, WHO, World Health Organization, estimates that there's a global shortage of healthcare workers, 18 million. So this is a huge issue that's coming down. And uh, even in the US, they say, by 2030, there'll be a shortage of 1 million healthcare workers, 1 million. So there's gonna be less. So that's why you gotta time, technology, we gotta really yeah. look at, at, at how do we solve this. In the next decade, there's gonna be further shortage of healthcare workers, right? Of course, hopefully automation, all these other things will help, but that's, you know, that remains to be seen. That's the shortage that is coming down the pathway for our children. I don't know if you have any children, but I have three. So from there, it's important. You have three? Yeah. I so figured I you had three. <laughs> Why did you figure I have three? Because the, the, the three <laughs> pillars, the three is very constant in your story. And you know what? Yeah. I have three too, Tony. Okay. All right. I have three boys. Yeah, exactly. So that's oh, really? awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Boys are definitely, t I have two boys and a girl. So the uh, girl like, evens it out and makes it worth it. I mean, <laughs> boys are just chill. I, I, they're a drain. I mean, I, I love them to death. I mean, to, but yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you're working on these projects internationally, pre-COVID, would you be traveling a lot often or everything you yeah. can do for, oh, you would? Okay. I actually went to, to India for the first time and I love the food over in India. I was like, I, I thought I would, I went over to India and the food is definitely much better. I mean, Indian food here is good, but Indian food there is 
better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I actually went over there for the first time. But prior to that, I was doing management consulting. So I used to travel the world quite a bit and travel beyond planes, you know, have all these memberships. And, you know, I, I mostly a lot of it was Asia, but I've been to different parts of the world. I even went to France for a conference to speak early in the days when we were doing some Alzheimer's research and stuff like that. So, yeah, used to travel a lot, but now with three kids, COVID, but even prior, once I had the third kid, my wife kind of clipped my wings and said, uh, you're not traveling. Staying home. Yeah, you're staying home. So, uh, but again, on the case, I mean, clip the wings. I did get to go to India for two weeks during that time. So she had to take care. So in return, I think uh, I returned the favor because she's actually from Vietnam. So we, I let her go to uh, hang out with her friends for a couple of weeks in Vietnam. So that was the the payback or not, not the payback, but I was just kind of, hey, you, you took care of the kids for two weeks and stuff like that. So oh, that was nice of you. Yeah. Yeah. So Tony, how, how has COVID, if at all, affected your business? I mean, I think like typical in the research space, it actually impacted. So NIH and everybody that funds this, there's a huge impact. So you couldn't do a lot of the research unless you were researching COVID patients, right? So that's, yeah. that was the one. A lot of the organizations that we work with, we work with some of the top research organizations, they just shut down and say, we're not doing research for the next six months. So that hit our bottom line and we actually had to get like the uh, PPP loan, uh, mm-hmm. the IDL loan to keep, just keep afloat. I mean, we had funding there, but we couldn't really do much of that funding because the research had basically stopped. I mean, where we could, because some of them had more development so we could do that, but that, that was really the extent. So I think everybody got hit, but I, I mean, I heard stories, right? So I was part of uh, EO, right? Entrepreneurs Organization, which is a, a network of entrepreneurs, great network, learns the scale, Vern Harnish's uh, organization. So we actually, uh, you know, there were organizations that had like um, very successful catering businesses and others that basically, I mean, there's no catering. I mean, people that, these were like multi-million dollar businesses, mm-hmm. right? That were successful people that had like catering businesses to like the, uh, I forget the sports team here, the the Washington Reds, whatever the Washington yeah, the re- uh, football team. I think that's yeah. the name now. Or Washingtonians now. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and, and then a couple of the, uh, they would cater to these teams and, yeah, done. Dried up, right? So yeah. this is the case, and so I think there's definitely a lot of organizations uh, uh, that got impacted, right? And some made it, and some didn't. I mean, some just kind of sneak, but uh, as far as trying to get some of these loans to kind of, I mean, I think it's helpful, and so we've been, uh, I guess, uh went by and now I think we're on the, an upward trajectory. So we have a couple of good products. Uh, uh, this past year, we also, that, we used that time to also focus on uh, uh, preparing ourselves to raise uh, venture funds and stuff like that. So it was part of What If Ventures and a couple other stuff to position ourselves for, for growth, right? So that's kind of really where we're going. And if we're successful, we would create some of these products and be able to give back and support the community. What would you say you're most proud of or what, what, what drives you right now? I guess uh, what drives me is, I guess, finding the right team members to really 
that are passionate about this mission. And I think that's, you know, just getting those right people. I don't know, uh, you know, from, from my perspective, the good thing is, you know, uh, we, we have the mission. I believe people are signed on board. So I think that's, uh, that's a positive. So we're, we're proud of the fact that we were able to keep everybody employed. And even towards the end of that, uh, hire some people, right? As we were, some of the fundings were, and, and research could start again a little bit, right? So it's still not fully there, but I think it's, it's definitely a, a challenge. And we, I guess who's to know what's going to happen with the spikes if there's going to be further closure. It's going to be, you know, but right now we're hopefully optimistic that 2021 will be a, a benchmark year for Benton as far as what, what we're up to and what we can do. So we, we've gotten some wins in our belts in this uh, last um, uh, two quarters. And I think we're hopefully optimistic for 2021 with a potential vaccine coming down the pipeline, multiple vaccines. Sure. Uh, so, um, so uh, you know, we're optimistic as best as we can be. Of course, knowing what you know now, Tony, with your career, is, is there anything you would have changed from the past? I, I would have gotten a coach. I mean, so in my, I would have gotten a coach much earlier. I learned, I mean, there was business a, coach. Yeah. Business coach. I mean, right now I have a business coach and then also a communications coach to work uh, my partnership with my, so communicate better communication with the team, better so I actually have two coaches of business, uh, one uh, to really kind of do that. And then also more of these networks. So now I'm part, you know, in the uh, EO, I, I didn't realize they were around until much later. I, I read a book called Scaling Up and that's really what brought, and then since then I found out the Scaling Up, EOS Traction and Three, three Hags. Those are three very good books mm-hmm. that are starting to scale. And then of course, some of these accelerators where you learn so I learned on my own, which is the stupid part, right? So I, if I had had this early on, I think I would have avoided a lot of the mistakes that I do now. But uh, again, that's live and learn. So I, I seek those out. I seek mastermind. I've tried different types of groups. And locally, that you know, you have uh, things like that. There's uh, uh, organizations like EO. I'm part of another group that's virtual called Founders Network. Okay. Which is like on the East Coast, which is more tech founders. And then, of course, I think locally, there's also like Vistage, Mastermind groups, all those things. Uh, I think if you if you're you want to build a rocket ship and you want, then you need to get these coaches, and that's helpful. So, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So, as as you know, there's a ton of coaches, and you mentioned of of various organizations right now. Anyone there listening to this, let's say they're an entrepreneur or even a startup that wants to start up their first business, what would you say are maybe some resources they can go and find a coach or would you suggest something specifically to their industry or not necessarily? What are your thoughts? I mean, it's always good to get varying opinions too. So I think there's definitely organizations like Gazelle's, different ones. I think key is also have they done it before, right? So or and there's lots of people that have to even like even starting simple as score the s-c-o-r-e you might start there and then uh, upgrade and then get advisors and get uh, mentors and others and, and get peers i think that's very helpful as you move forward it's it i can't say enough uh to the different types of uh coaching and and that network to really help 
elevate your game and get you to that next level. So it's worth the investment. And you personally have seen the difference with the business coach and how it's affected your business personally. It's helped me to better realign and, and set things up. So again, we're getting success. And again, hopefully 2021, ask me again at the end of 21, <laughs> 21 but everything, every form of coaching, I, I, I love it. helped me bypass mistakes now. So I, so I'm willing to pay the money, right? So I do yes. pay for coaching services, this, that network, this network. I think it's valuable uh, to do that. But of course, it's definitely, uh, it's important to implement that too. So that's where me and my business partner is like, it's, you're getting a lot now, but how much are we actually implementing? So we implement those two pieces that will actually help us to be more successful. And so I think we're, moving so i can't say enough about getting the right coach that's been there done that uh, and and maybe helpful uh, and then having peers too that are there i love that what does uh, the next five years look for benton uh, i mean i love what i'm doing my my goal is we're creating all these products and spinning off these products and making other minorities successful too so that's my mission so i've learned a set of skills and i want to be able to pass that on as well so um we're looking at creating like almost like this this cycle of of of, of successful entrepreneurs uh, imparting that wisdom to others uh and we believe it's going to take a village to impact a billion lives that's our ultimate mission so we actually have um things in the work to kind of really get to that. I know I, myself and my business partner and our small business won't be able to do that alone. We will need uh, a tribe of people and we're building that tribe of both from our research to, to institutes, to states, to global networks, things of that nature to really do that. And I think it's it, when you have a, a admirable mission and your why, it's easy to wake up every, in the morning and it's easy for people to sign on to that mission because that's by their mission as well. Right. So uh, that's the positive. That's great. Tony, lastly, what do you like to do in your free time? Free time. If I had free time, let me see. I mean, right now it's just, uh, I, I love to read. I love to listen to, again, I'm a lifelong learner. So I read, uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts uh, you know, so, so some of the, my favorite podcasts uh, right now, I uh, listen to uh, the Dealmakers podcast, which is about other successful entrepreneurs and stuff like that as a VC and tech entrepreneurs. Uh, I, uh, we're big into mental health, too. So there's a podcast by Stephen uh, Hayes. We just finished his actually fellowship program. Uh, and uh, that is called the Stigma podcast. So it's about mental health. There. And as an entrepreneur, I think that's something we neglect, but that's important, self-care and, and mental health. Uh, and um, there's, a, uh, uh, there's, there's another one, The Story Brand. I, I like that too. It, it's uh, Don Miller's podcast about telling a good story. Yes. And I think that's the number one tip uh, for any entrepreneur is to be able to tell a good story because it's valuable in everything. And here's the reason why. In the VC world, when you're raising money, it's about telling the good story. And that's the hook to hook them in. In, in 
contracts and proposal and grants. It's about telling a good story. If you can tell a good story, you can get in sales and marketing. It's about telling a good story in creating a, a vision for the company and everything. It's about telling a good story. I mean, a true authentic story. I mean, you can rely on, I think that's, that comes across that authenticity and what's the story and what's your, uh, it, it comes across. And I think that's uh, uh, a valuable skill set. So listen to, I mean, I, I, I don't get anything out of it, but I love like uh, the story brand and anything about storytelling because I think that's how people communicate, right? I mean, this is, so people communicate uh, through the ages and through centuries through st good storytelling, right? That's what sticks in our heads. That's what we remember. I agree 100%. And I mean, you have an amazing story. And that was one, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the show. And I even have this show is just, you know, to a platform for people to know and get to hear the story of entrepreneurs in the, in the DMV area. Thank you so much, Tony, for sharing your story. I appreciate it. Um, thank you for having me. Hopefully and, I added value to your listenership and it continues to grow. Thank you. Definitely. Of course. Where can people find out more about you and your company if they want to know more? So you, they can, of course, go to our URL. Of course, they can go LinkedIn. Of course, there's more Tony Ma. I'm not Jack Ma, but Tony Ma uh, on LinkedIn. So I, I can definitely connect through LinkedIn. But then also you can go to like uh, Benton Tech, uh, I think, dot com is our website. So that's another option. So you, uh, definitely I I, I do accept invites, but I, I am flooded every once in a while by certain types of, of vendors that I won't respond to as much. But if you're, if you're authentic, just like you, I think you reached out to me and, and it's authentic and it's an authentic conversation. I'm happy to help them. Uh, that's one of the networks that I'm part of uh, called um, uh, Founders Network. It's about peer-to-peer -peer and helping each other. It's I mean, we do what we do because we want to improve the world. And if that doesn't translate to helping other people be successful, then uh, why are we doing that? Exactly. Thank you so much, Tony. I appreciate it. Thank you. You have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. If you haven't done so already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review and comment and let me know what you think. Thank you, and I'll see you all very soon on the next episode.